Second Kings is where we're at. Just working our way through the word and uh, find ourselves in chapter one of Second Kings. Uh, Second Kings picks up and continues the drama that First Kings uh, started. <clears throat> you remember the uh, the division of the kingdom of Israel, and uh, there's there's Judah now in the south, Israel in the north, and uh, we'll see through Second Kings that there's going to be 19 kings in Israel. 19 wicked kings and, and uh, maybe an occasional glimmer of righteousness, uh, but that never lasts more than a day, really, you know, uh, for those kings of Israel. So 19 wicked kings uh, will lead to the end of the book of Second Kings, will lead Israel into captivity by Assyria. And uh, Judah seems to have a little more hope as there's some more righteous kings that will come and, and do some uh, reform there in the, in the nation of Judah. And one king will come along and set up idols and idol worship and filthiness and paganism, sexual immorality. And then another king will come and kick all that out. And yet by the end of second Kings, we're going to see that, uh, sin over outweighed, uh, righteousness. And so we see Judah also being led into captivity, but by Babylon. And so the first 17 chapters of Second Kings, uh, we see both Israel and Judah interchanged off and on, which king's which. And then uh, <clears throat> after the 17th chapter, uh, it's just Judah. So it's a little easier of a read. Um, if you've forgotten who's written First and Second Kings, most people believe it was Jeremiah. Uh, if you read the book of Jeremiah and you read Kings, it's it's very similar in the language and the writing style. Um, but then when you get to chapter 22, uh, somebody else wrote chapters 22 through 25 because it's kind of a cool book because this whole time is leading up to the captivities that are going to happen. And then uh, in chapter 22, uh, it's written from somebody else's view of the captivities already having happened. They just got out of it and they're writing, you know, past view of what's happened. So it's, it's interesting to see this is all going to happen. This is all going to happen. And then whoop, it happened, you know, by the end of the book. So the key chapter of the book is chapter 25, uh, where just sadly you see uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming into Israel, coming into Jerusalem and destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple that we've, we've read about the temple being built and how marvelous it was as a structure and what God wanted to do through that temple. But by chapter 25 of this book, we're going to see it being in ruins. And so really kind of a, a sobering book to see uh, all of the warnings and all of it leading up to captivity and then the captivities happening because they wouldn't turn away from their sin. Now, if you just keep your finger there in Second Kings chapter 1, and just go back a couple pages in your Bible to chapter 21. <clears throat> and you can just uh, find it uh, there in uh, verses 17 through 29. And just maybe skim along with your eyes as I just summarize it. Basically, Ahab was the king of Israel at the end of First Kings. And Ahab was the most wicked king yet. So wicked. He married Jezebel, who was a Syrian woman. And uh, she just led him into even more paganism and idol worship and just a very wicked, wicked couple murdering the prophets, just slaughtering the prophets, feeding 850 false prophets 
at their table every day. So if you can just imagine the wickedness that was going on uh, through, you know, sexual immorality worship and, um, you know, child sacrifice worship and, and that type of stuff. And so finally, Elijah, the prophet, predicts Ahab's death. And tells Ahab that, you know, you're going to be slaughtered and the dogs are going to lick your blood up in the same field that they licked uh, Nadab's uh, blood up. And, uh, or I believe it was Nadab. I know some of the names kind of blend together in my mind. But the, the, the man who he'd stole his vineyard from in that chapter. So Ahab, you're going to die a, a gruesome death and the dogs will lick your blood up. And then all of your sons are going to die. God's going to wipe out your house, Ahab, for all of your wickedness that you've done. And it says there in chapter 1 that Ahab, uh, verse 27, when he heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about uh, mourning. And so just incredible to see that even the most wicked man that had ever been king over Israel humbled himself and mourned over his sin. And the Lord saw that and heard it and said, you know what? Because he humbled himself, he won't see this happen to his sons. He's not going to see it within his lifetime. So there was some mercy there. If anyone here has ever lost a child, certainly, uh, you know, you, you never want to see that. Most people, when they lose a child, they'll say, you know, a parent is never supposed to bury their child. And so, you know, the Lord has mercy on Ahab and, and doesn't let him see all the calamity that's going to come on his sons. But then if you look over in chapter 22, right at the end of the book, we see Ahab has a son named Ahaziah. We're going to read about him tonight in second Kings and Ahaziah verse 51, the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah and reigned two years over Israel. So only a two year uh, reign. Now, you guys are really going to have to, you know, be taking notes and just write little notes in your Bible because it gets confusing when you study the kings because there's two Ahaziahs. There's one Ahaziah over Israel and there's one over Judah a few years later. And so this is the one we're reading Ahab's son. In verse 52, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, for he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. And so tonight, as we get into 2 Kings chapter 1, we're going to read of this judgment upon Ahab's household and the, and the, the killing of the son Ahaziah, the judgment upon him. And as you read First and Second Kings, a prophet will say something and prophesy something, and then it will happen, and it'll always say when it happens, according to the word of the Lord through the prophet. And then another prophet will prophesy something, and then according to the word of the Lord through the prophet, and so on and so forth. We're going to read that even tonight. And uh, so it just goes to show that Jesus says, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Every jot and tittle will, will be found to come true. From the littlest punctuation mark in the Hebrew alphabet to the space bar, you know, or the space in between the words, it's all going to come true. And so we read it coming true tonight in chapter one. Hopefully that wasn't too much re, uh, re, re, rehash for you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's going to be a long night, I'll tell you that. Uh, 
But anyways, chapter one, verse one, uh, and, and real quick, you might remember last week we didn't finish the study on Jehoshaphat because my voice went out on me, uh, but we're going to talk about Jehoshaphat uh, the week after next on a Sunday, and we're going to read about the fast that he proclaimed as we get into our week of prayer and fasting. And it's an incredible story that'll give you goosebumps. And so I'm glad that we didn't get to it because it would have been a spoiler for week after next. So we'll talk about Jehoshaphat in a week and a half. But Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So the Moabites had always been paying homage to King Ahab, and really they'd been part of Israel from David's days, and now that Ahab is dead, Ahab was a pretty powerful king, his son Ahaziah is in place, and they, they had been, you know, they'd pay thousands of sheep and thousands of dollars worth of wool, and they said, nope, we're done, and so you already see uh, some, some trouble brewing ahead there for Israel, but verse 2, here's Ahab's son Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. What he was doing, God only knows, you know. Not even sure where's this lattice at. I have no clue that you would fall through it, but might have been the old school version of a sunroof or or a, yeah, sunroof. The lattice, he fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire of but Zebub, the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So he's injured uh, and he sends messengers to Ekron, which is 40 miles away. That's a long ways to go on foot uh, to seek a false God. And there were all sorts of places to seek Baalzebub, but for some reason he wanted to go 40 miles away, perhaps so people wouldn't know he was seeking this God. <clears throat> Turns out he ends up getting found out there. Now Baalzebub was the Hebrew word, it, it was a Hebrew way of saying Baal, you know, meaning Lord, and it means Lord of the flies or Lord of the dung. And the Hebrews gave him this name because he was nothing compared to Yahweh. He, he, didn't, even, he didn't even exist. He was a figment of people's imaginations. Like Isaiah says, with idols, we find a stump in the woods. We get our chainsaw out or our pocket knife. We start whittling on it, you know. And we use the, uh, I think that might have been uh, someone dying in the children's bathroom. I don't know. I might want to check on that. Uh, you know, they whittle out the log and make a little carved image and start worshiping it. And part of the log, they use the shavings to cook their food on and this and that. And it's just ridiculous, you know. Uh, it's, you know, it's like a dung god compared to Yahweh or the flies that are on the dung that carry disease, you know. It's the comparison there. And he wants to know, will I recover from this injury? But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. So the message is, What's your deal? You know, have you forgotten about Yahweh? Which the answer was, it was rhetorical. You know, uh, obviously they had forgotten about Yahweh. They were worshiping all sorts of calf gods and bull gods and all that stuff. Uh, and uh, just total stupidity. But he says, all right, you know, you want to worship that and you want to seek them? You're not going to get healed and you're going to die with this condition that you have. And it's very similar. You might remember uh, King Asa, who was a good king of Judah. And uh, King Asa uh, beat an army with, 
uh, beat the Egyptians. They're a million man army. Just totally wiped them out because of the Lord. And then he had a little conflict with Israel. And so he hired Syria to come help him. And you remember the Lord said, what's the deal? You don't want my help? I'm the one that beat the million man Egyptian army. You don't want my help? And, uh, and so Asa was, he got in trouble. He got chastised for that. Also, you remember Asa uh, had a foot disease, hoof and mouth or something like that. I don't know. But uh, really bad case of athlete's foot for sure. And you remember that instead of seeking the Lord to heal him from this foot disease, he uh, sought all of the physicians. And because of that, he died of his foot disease. And so here, uh, Ahaziah doesn't want the Lord's help. He wants Baalzebub's help, the dung god. Well, you can have the dung god, but you're going to die from your pain there. And so verse 5, so when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you come back? So they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. Remember his dad, Ahab, hated Elijah the Tishbite because Elijah would never prophesy good concerning him, but only evil. And so, you know, a a hairy man with a leather belt, you know, a Bigfoot looking fellow, you know, um, was easy to remember. You'd always know who that was. And the NIV says that it was the hairy garment that he had, very similar to um, John the Baptist and the clothing that he would wear with the leather belt. A lot of people would confuse John the Baptist with Elijah. And that's a whole Bible study that we may do later. But, um, you know, who, what's this guy look like? This is what he looks like. Unforgettable. So they answered him, or I guess we read that, verse 9. So the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to him, and there he was, sitting on the top of a hill, and he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. And so basically, I mean, it's kind of, as we're going to read these next two chapters, I don't know if you're a very visual person like me, but it's, it's an interesting scene, very, very prophet-like, you know, to be looking for someone, and there he is, sitting on a hill all by himself, you know, it's like, there he is, okay. Uh, and everyone knows what he's done, that he's done the victory on Mount Carmel and calling fire down from heaven, and all right, there he is, guys, he's, Kind of weird looking, isn't he? All right, well, I'll go talk to him, you know. And so they, they go up to confront him and they, they command him as if he's subject to this king Ahaziah. Come down. The king said, come down here. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. No one was able to report back that, He really is a man of God, even though everyone knew it. Then another, verse 11, then he sent to him another captain of 50 with his men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus has said the the king, come down quickly. So Elijah answered and said to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. It's it's almost like a joke, huh? You know, you're waiting for the punchline. Here's the punchline. And fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50, a hundred crispy critters there in the valley. Verse 13, again, he sent a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees, <laughs> came in humility before Elijah and pleaded with them and said to him, man of God, 
please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. No longer is it, come down here, the king wants you. It's, whoa, we're just your servants now, buddy, you know. Let, it, let me just be the Pony Express to get the message back and forth. And uh, he says, look, fires come down from heaven and burn up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And uh, you can sing now, Jesus loves little children, precious in his sight. Now you can sing the little 50s and 50s, precious in his sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, now, isn't it neat to see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? It's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, And often when you read of this, there's flat out sayings from the people around him that they're talking with God right now. And uh, so... The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Now, a couple things here. No, you know, there was Elijah just sitting on the hill and, uh, you know, he was doing something and Elisha was with him. Elisha and him were, uh, Elisha was his disciple by this point. Um, But uh, notice that Elijah was just waiting on the spirit to direct him. You know, he didn't really have anything to do right then. He's kind of like, all right, just here waiting on the Lord, you know, and uh, seeking the Lord. I know that he's going to use me. And the Lord would come and just give him his marching orders for the next day. As my mom always said that, you know, uh, as we would pray in the morning as kids, she'd always just pray, and Lord, give us our marching orders, you know. And the Lord did that uh, for Elijah. And, and he'd say, okay, you know, here this man has come and he's humbled himself. And now it's time to go. And uh, he just was uh, sensitive to the listening to the Lord. Another thing you can notice from that is the angel of the Lord told him, do not be afraid of him. That's kind of encouraging, isn't it? That Elijah, the prophet, one of the most incredible prophets in the Old Testament, uh, wrestled with fear, wrestled with doubt. You know, as we've talked about a lot, James tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed that it would rain, and it, and it did rain. It's just how encouraging. A man with a nature just like ours doubt, doubts the Lord, you know, has fear of man. And when a king would call him, you know, there's, there's that level of fear, even after all of the victories that he would have. And hopefully you're encouraged by that tonight, that, you know, when you're just waiting for your marching orders for that day, Elijah would do the same thing. When you get scared, you know, I've just, uh, I don't know that I should really share this or not, but uh, just woke, you know, woken up a couple times, uh, just afraid in the morning, you know, and I had the staff, we prayed together as a staff, just waking up afraid, um, just weird, you know, a very weird thing. I'm not going to tell you of what, but don't ever watch the exorcism of Emily Rose by yourself. No, I'm kidding. That's not what I was afraid of, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> uh, verse 16. So then he said to him, thus says the Lord, uh, because you've sent messengers to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron, it's because, is it because there's no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken because he had no son. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now, if you just did a you know, uh, it's because, yes, right now there are two King Jehorams, okay? Did you read that? Right now, and I, I had the slide all set for tonight, but I forgot to load it up. But um, if you look at the lo- timeline of the kings, Jehoshaphat's son in Judah, his name was Jehoram. And now this new king of 
of Israel. His name is Jehoram. So at the same time, there was a, you know, you just got to, you got to put your brain on sometimes when you read the Bible and, and note those things. Probably not the biggest deal in the world, but you know, if you want to go to heaven, you might want to remember that. <coughs> and nobody's getting up and leaving yet. So that's good or bad. Uh, now, the, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Chapter two, uh, in chapter two, we read about, uh, the chariot of fire taking up Elijah. <coughs> and at this point, it's been 10 years since first Kings chapter 19, verse 19, where, uh, Elijah came into the field while, or Eli- yeah, Elijah came into the field while Elisha was plowing and he just walked up to uh, Elisha while he was plowing and he threw his mantle or his tunic on him. Kind of a, you know, what are you doing? This is kind of freaky, you know, uh, threw his tunic on him and basically, basically called him to be his disciple. So for 10 years, Elisha has been discipled by Elijah. Now, uh, an easy way to remember Elijah and Elisha and who they are is that J comes before S, okay? So Elijah came before Elisha. So once again, if you want to go to heaven, uh, you might want to take notes there. <coughs> uh, but there's just this incredible discipleship time that's taken place. And you know, it's just neat to have come to this chapter because the Lord is doing such a work in this church right now uh, of discipling. And, uh, and, and actually the stage that we're at right now is the beginning of the work and just how neat that the Lord just led me, uh, it's all him that he led us to study second Timothy chapter two on Sunday about Paul exhorting Timothy. Oh, thanks. I thought I had one over here. I do have one, but is this a hint? You might want to use that thing. Uh, Paul exhorting Timothy, Timothy train up faithful men to teach faithful men and how even on Sunday, just hearing the report of all the people that are stirred right now in the body to make disciples and wanting to be a part of, of discipleship in this church. And man, it's just been overwhelming for me because I'm just making a list in my head of all the men that, that need discipleship and all the women that need discipleship and knowing that I don't have the time to do it and just how cool that uh, just in the last three days, so many women have raised up to, uh, to be part of training up faithful women who will go out and train up faithful women. And uh, we're still working on the men's side of thing. It's just, you know, I uh, just haven't heard from many men yet. But if you're a, a man, you know, anybody here right now, I just want to ask you, who are you discipling? Who are you discipling right now? If the answer is nobody, then you need to be discipling somebody. Obviously not for salvation type purposes, but, you know, that's what we're here for. <laughs> You know, the Lord wants to use us in that. And so if you're not discipling anybody, be praying about who you can disciple. In fact, tonight I printed up two flyers, one for the men and one for the women, and they're out in the foyer. It's, yes, I want to be a teacher and I want to disciple people. And how neat that, um, uh, kind of getting ahead of myself, but also got a call from a woman that, you know, she's, she wants to do a discipleship training class so that people know how to disciple people. And it's just a work that the Lord is doing in this body, just, you know, that he might help us catch the vision for discipleship because it's necessary. It is necessary. You know, people can come in off the streets by the droves and they can raise their hand on a Sunday morning and tears of repentance and we'll get all excited and that is all great. But 
within five minutes of that study being over, you know, I'd venture to say 95% of those people walk out the door and you never see them again. You just never see them again. And that's just fruit that's just getting away or that's just seed that's getting away. And so, man, obviously in no way trying to condemn anybody, but just, man, pray that the Lord will help you catch the vision for discipleship. Uh, you know, training up someone younger than you in the faith or someone younger than you, uh, period. Much like Moses trained up Joshua and, and poured into him because Joshua was going to replace him. And did you guys know that Christianity teeters at extinction with just one generation? You know, one generation passes away that hasn't been discipled and Christianity's kaput, you know? And, uh, you know, it's because faithful men train faithful men that you or I are even here tonight. And so won't you be a part of that? You know, won't you be a part of what God's doing in discipling, you know, uh, in the children's ministry? You know, we're to be discipling our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says that in the morning and in the afternoon and when you're walking along the path and when you put your kids to bed, you're to be teaching them the word of God. And I'm weak in that. You know, I'm, you know, I can say a couple days of a week that uh, that happens, you know, and, uh, but, you know, just Russell, his memory verse this week is uh, children, you know, uh, or no, that was his last week's one. It's, um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and uh, love the neighbor as yourself. And just as we're in the shower, you know, Russell and I are in the shower, and we're washing, you know, and I'm just like, you know, you shall, you shall rub the Lord, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you know, and just, you know, whatever we're doing, we're eating, we're going to bed, we're rehearsing that memory verse. So you can quiz him tonight if you see him. Uh, he might be a little burnt out on it, though, and might not want to tell you. It's like, come on, Dad. Um, but, you know, and what an opportunity to disciple the youth in this church. We're still needing children's ministry helpers. And how neat when a man steps up to the place, the plate to disciple in children's church. We had an incredible turnout on Sunday morning of, you know, I don't know, 25-ish, 30 maybe children's helpers. But four of them were men. And one of them was Stuart. And he has to lead worship, so I'm not going to let him help in the children's ministry. I don't know why he was there. There was free subway, so, Stuart. But, uh, you know, three men, 27 women. You know, men, we need you in the children's ministry. And young men need you. They need to see men stepping up to the plate and leading by example. It's not the woman's job. It's not. Uh, it's also the woman's job. And so, um, you know, I learned in just high school ministry, I would have a discipleship group once a week where uh, at times 15 kids or something, 15 boys, and over half of those boys had no father, had, had never had a father. Uh, and, you know, and part of discipleship was teaching them how to run equipment and teaching them how to do uh, construction and teaching them how to study the Bible, how to teach a Bible study and all of that and just stuff that these guys would have never had. Maybe from a man in the world, but we all know how that would have turned out. And so, you know, please, men, pray. And just take a step of faith. You know, just take a step of faith. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to teach little kids. Take a step of faith. And uh, let those little guys see you leading by example. And uh, is he ever going to get off this tangent, I wonder? Well, no. Uh, because we're going to see this just this incredible discipleship time between Elijah and Elisha. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And we'll just see that they traveled together. That's one of the things that they do. I uh, 
Rob, my pastor, would always take somebody with him to disciple when he would travel somewhere. And a lot of times that was me. That was a lot of fun. Uh, he took me to Israel. He took me to L.A., you know. He just, when he had to go somewhere, for one reason, I was accountability, you know, to help keep him pure on his journey. But another, you know, he, he poured into me during those times. And so you got to make a trip to Bend, guys or gals, you know. Hey, I'm going to be all by myself in the car. Let me you know, dial up that, that girl I've had on my heart or that guy, please girls with girls, guys with guys. Uh, this is not dating opportunity, you know, but you know, they would travel together and they went from Gilgal and then Elisha, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know. Keep silent. Or maybe you have the NIV and it says, you know, keep talking or quit talking about this. Quit, quit discussing this. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Uh, Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you over you today? And he answered, yes, I know. Keep silent. And so you just see the, the hurt in Elisha's heart of his father in the faith. And later on, he calls him father uh, of his father departing. And I remember the morning that I woke up, my dad had been in the hospital for five days in a coma. And I knew the day when we were going to pull the tube and, and get him off of life support. I remember waking up that day and just getting dressed and brushing my teeth and fixing my hair and just knowing this is the day that, you know, I'm going to say goodbye to my dad in this world. And just, just a hard day when you know that it's the last day you're going to see somebody. And it just, there was just some, some hurt there in Elisha. And you see these, these sons of the prophets, you see the repetition, you know, they're at Gilgal, the sons of the prophets come out and say that. They're in Bethel, the sons of the prophets say that. They're at Jericho, the sons of the prophets come out, they say that. And the sons of the prophets, uh, they were basically uh, disciples of the prophets. They were in like little Bible colleges, you know, uh, it could say the company of sons, you know, the company of prophets or the school of prophets, prophet school 101. And, uh, these guys were young men who were very zealous and may, maybe, you know, young men who are zealous in the Lord. And a lot of times they don't really have sensitivity, you know, they don't really have tact, you know, they're just zealous about the word and zealous about speaking prophecy, you know, and Wow, all 50 of us know that Elijah's going home today. Let's go tell everybody and make sure that Elisha knows, you know. And, and they would just go and with no sensitivity, you know, 50 of them confronting, you know, and being like, hey, don't you know your, your father in the faith's going to heaven today? Gosh, quit talking about it, you know, just lacking sensitivity. And so it is just a good word, you know, to just be sensitive to people when they're going through hard times, um, for goodness sakes. Uh, but notice the repetition here. You know, as Elijah says to Elisha, hey, stay here in Gilgal, stay here in Bethel, stay here in Jericho. And each time, no, I will not. I am not letting you out of my sight. You know, God's going to have to pry you from my cold, dead fingertips if he's going to get you to heaven, you know, and uh, just not wanting to part from his sight. And what was happening here, it wasn't that Elijah was wanting to ditch Elisha, you know, 
I also remember those days in my awkward middle school years when I would move a lot and nobody wanted to be my friend. Just because I was a little bit buck-toothed. And my Adam's apple looked like an ostrich who'd swallowed an egg. <laughs> Just so you can get to know me a little bit. Um, geez, people can be so mean. You know, yeah, Elijah wasn't trying to ditch Elisha. But what he was doing was testing him. He was testing him because Elisha was about to take Elijah's place in ministry. Similar to the experience that Peter had with Jesus in John chapter 21. Jesus, the resurrected Lord, meeting Peter out there at the lake of, or the sea of Tiberias. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yeah, I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? What in the world? Are you like a scratch record or something? Of course I love you. Then feed my sheep, Peter. You know, and then he goes on to share what's going to happen in Peter's life and that Peter's going to be a martyr for the gospel. But there was testing that was taking place. And that's common for the Lord. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 says that before people are raised up into church leadership, they're to be tested. They're to be tested and they're to be found faithful before they're appointed to offices within the church. You know, it's foolishness to just raise people up into leadership positions when you don't know where they stand doctrinally, uh, when you don't know where they stand uh, faithfully in service. And, you know, it's wisdom to test. And, you know, maybe you're here tonight and you want to be in ministry in some capacity. Man, I just encourage you, be faithful in the little things. You know, let the leadership of this church see you being faithful. And it's okay to communicate your heart to us. Man, I have a heart to be a worship leader. You know, or I have a heart to be teaching the Bible somehow or to do something like that. Man, let us know that. We want to know where your heart's at. And then, you know, and be faithful in the little things. Oftentimes, uh, you know, guys will think they have a call on their life for something and they'll never come to stuff. And they'll just kind of wait at home, you know, for that phone call from the pastor saying, hey, how would you like to teach for me on Sunday? Or so, how would you like to be the new youth pastor or something like that? It's not going to happen or it shouldn't happen. There needs to be testing before people are raised up. I'll tell you, your elders and Pastor Ryan did a good job in testing me uh, before I came here. Boy, howdy. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to die. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you know, the night before I came and taught here, I just sat out in my car at five in the morning just saying, please let the rapture happen. Please let the rapture happen. Please let the rapture happen. You know, I was just, you know, feeling so foolish and like I just totally flunked everything they threw at me and perhaps I did and they chose the foolish thing of the world. But um, Kevin, no comment. <laughs> but, um, but there's testing and that's wisdom. And, uh, and, and Elijah is testing Elisha here. If he's going to want to you know, have the gifts of Elijah. He's going to need to walk in his footsteps, or uh, we'll see that a little bit later, actually. And so, uh, <clears throat> verse 7, And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at the distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. So, you got to, again, use, use your imaginations, guys. Just like Elijah was up on the hill, and that was just kind of a dramatic scene. You know, here, Elijah and Elisha are heading out of Israel you guys know that the Jordan River borders Israel on the east. And as they're stepping up to the end of it, they see 50 sons of the prophets standing over there. Uh, and you know what the message that they're bringing is. You know, hey, did you know that your father in the faith is going to depart from you? And, uh, <clears throat> but just, 
<clears throat> they stood there facing each other, almost like a showdown, but with no malice in between them. You know, just this like, <whistles> okay, bad whistle. Now, verse 8, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. So this is like his, his uh, little cloak thing, kind of his symbol of authority. And he rolled up his garment and he struck the water with it. And it was divided this way and that way so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so automatically you, your mind should be thinking, okay, the Red Sea. You know, I remember when the Lord did that at the Red Sea. Where else should your mind be going right now? As you read that Joshua, when chapter three, when, uh, when Israel, the children of Israel were coming into the promised land, the Lord said, okay, here's how we're going to cross over the Jordan river. And at that time, the Jordan was in its flood stages. So just this massive rip roaring river at the time. And, uh, the Lord said, okay, all of the priests, you know, you got to carry the ark and you're going to travel about 300 yards of, in front of everybody else. And you're going to walk down into this river. <clears throat> but don't worry, when you get down into the river, it's going to be heaped up on both sides. And so the, the priests went with the ark and they, you know, what an incredible uh, step of faith they took. This is where we kind of get that word step of faith is they stepped into the water. And, you know, the front priests, you know, with the ark stepping in a little bit deeper and deeper. And as, you know, the six or whatever of them got down in there, it wasn't until all of their feet were wet with faith that the river was heaped up. And it says that the river was heaped up so far that it, it, it reached a city nearby and that all of the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. And, you know, that was centuries before this. You know, and I'm just encouraged because the same God who did this same miracle, you know, centuries beforehand, he's the same God of miracles today. You know, in fact, that's one of the gifts of the spirit is the gift of miracles, you know? And, uh, and so man, uh, definitely take huge steps of faith for the Lord there. Um, but they did, you know, he, he hit the, and they crossed across on dry land in verse nine. <clears throat> and so it was when they'd crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? And Elijah, Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. You know, it takes us back to, you know, 1 Kings chapter 3, where uh, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon didn't ask wealth for himself or great power or anything like that. He said, man, I'm a young boy as a king now, and I don't know how to go out or come in. I have no clue how to rule. Would you give me an understanding heart or a wise heart? And the Lord gave him that. And you guys know the story, and some of you, it's just like, some of you are new, so I'll still say it, you know. Uh, but, you know, so the Lord said, because you asked for that, you know, and not for riches and all that stuff, I'm going to give you wisdom like you asked for, so that no one else will ever be as wise as you, and I'm also going to give you the other things you didn't ask for because you ask so selflessly. And here we see just the same sort of thing. Ask, what, you know, what can I give you? I'll give you anything. And Elisha doesn't ask for anything that's going to benefit him, but only things that are going to benefit the ministry of the Lord and the furtherance of the, the message of holiness, the message of God. And so he says, please, 
let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Man, if you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible, then you're going to hell for sure. No, not really. But you might want to underline that. (laughs) You know, it's such an incredible, encouraging verse for me. And I've prayed it out a lot this week. You know, Elijah was a man who shadowed Elijah for, for 10 years and saw incredible miracles take place. And he knew that those miracles and that power wasn't in and of Elijah himself, but it was because of the spirit of God that was upon him. He wanted that power. And you know, the double portion goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, where the, the, the law of the birthright is passed out, where the, uh, the firstborn son wouldn't just get a portion of an inheritance, but he'd get a double portion of the inheritance. And so Elisha says, Man, I would love to have a portion of your spirit, buddy old pal. But even more so, I want like a firstborn's birthright. You're like my father in the faith. Give me a double portion. And man, how we should be crying out for the same thing. How we need power. That same spirit that was upon Elijah can be upon us today. And it's not some funky force like Luke Skywalker would cry out for. But it's a person. Excuse me. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved. He has feelings. He's the third person of the Trinity, and he dwells inside of us. And the cool thing is, is that we can cry out for more of him and more of him and more of him. You know, there's three different works of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. There's the para work of the Holy Spirit where he's alongside non-believers And it says he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you will, I use this example just to help. And we'll we'll get into it in a couple weeks when we start the book of Acts. But imagine uh, a pitcher of water as the Holy Spirit and a Dixie cup as you and me before salvation. And the Holy Spirit is alongside us, convicting us of our sin. But when we get saved and we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes in us. And it's the Greek word N, E-N. He comes in us and he fills us. And if you would take that picture and just pour the Dixie cup and fill us. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we're sealed with the Spirit. And if you know anything about beakers and science and water, that meniscus at the top of the water that's like a seal, uh, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But then you see in the book of Acts, the epi or the upon or the overflowing, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses. And and then you see in the book of Acts that there's just this continual filling. And you'll just read again and again in the disciples, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they were overflowed, and it's, it means continually filled. And, you know, there's no, bo- you know, God's not in a box as to when or how he does that, uh, you know, when the baptism of the Spirit comes or whatever. As you read the book of Acts, it happens all over the place in believers' lives. But the incredible thing is that that power, that same power to be a witness or a martyr or a modern-day Elijah or a modern-day Peter or Paul is here for us tonight. And we can cry out, Lord, give us a double portion of the spirit that was on Paul that enabled him to speak so boldly and forsake the cares of this world, you know, and to just be all that you wanted him to be for you. Cry out for a double portion of the the spirit. Cry out for the gifts of the spirit, the enabling of the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 says, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And yet the church just seems to be so ignorant of spiritual gifts. And they're afraid of spiritual gifts. And they're afraid to just dissect the chapters that deal with spiritual gifts and the order that, that is needed for them uh, in the church. But, you know, we're, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in 14 in, in so many words that we're to earnestly desire the best gifts in chapter 12 at the end of the chapter. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Are you earnestly desiring spiritual gifts? You know, we're to not quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tells us. You know, it's something that we're doing, quenching the spirit. You know, you read about Achan and Joshua uh, and how Achan, you know, they were told not to steal any of the um, enemy's gold or silver or garments or anything like that, but they were to destroy all of them. And Achan hid a wedge of cheese and a garment under his floor in his tent. And because he was disobedient, the army, the Israeli army would lose the battle. And finally they said, why are we losing the battle? And the Lord said, because someone among you is basically quenching the victory. And they found out after a process of investigation that it was Achan and Achan and his whole household died. And so it's just a warning to us that one of us living a a lifestyle of unrepentant sin can quench what the spirit of God wants to do in Calvary Chapel and in Prineville and just to daily be asking the Lord to search our hearts that we could not quench the spirit. You know, First Thessalonians chapter five also says, do not despise the spirit. Or, or don't despise prophecies, that gift of the Spirit. We're not to forbid the Spirit, uh, we're told. Uh, not to forbid someone uh, in speaking in tongues. And obviously there's order with that. It's a whole Bible study in and of itself. But, but do you catch all the instructions so far? Totally desire spiritual gifts. Don't be ignorant about the Holy Spirit's role in your life because he's there to empower you. He's there to give you gifts as he wills, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us. And to one guy might be given one gift, to another gal might be given a different gift. To some people, two people might be given the same gift, but it's manifested in different ways and it looks different. And so there's just, man, there's the, the need to just crave and desire all that God has for us in spiritual gifts. You know a great place uh, for spiritual gifts and to pray for spiritual gifts? The pulse, you know? Let me throw that plug in. Did I get it in? And I don't mean to just always throw the, but literally like, man, my heart is that the pulse be a place where we're able to use our spiritual gifts. We're to cry out for our spiritual gifts. I met with a man yesterday who, uh, who has, uh, I believe a gift of dreaming dreams. And I've just encouraged him, man, come to the pulse. Don't rob us by not coming to the pulse, you know? I said, we want your dreams and we want to pray for interpretation of those dreams because the Lord, it says in the end times, he's going to speak through the older men having visions and dreams and, and younger men having visions and dreams. And we want you there. You know, we want the gifts in the body. And this is a church where we believe the spiritual gifts are for today and we want to operate in them. And so, man, if you want to earnestly desire, you want to, to come and just all that the Lord has, come to the pulse and, and just see what he'll do in crying out for those spiritual gifts. But just, you know, so needing power, huh? Each and every one of us. You read the book of Acts and there's power all throughout the book of Acts. You just read of these men and women full of the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, and then as you leave and, and finish the book of Acts, and you're like, well, I'm done with the book of Acts, what does it leave you with? 
craving more of the Holy Spirit in your life and wanting to be like those men and women in the book of Acts. So please let a double portion be upon me. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. You know, the the Holy Spirit's not for me to just give out. You know, but here will be the sign of if if the Lord will, will do that. He says, nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So here's the sign of if you will get, uh, if, you know, if the Lord will do this work. And so stay close, <laughs> you know, stay close. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So just this incredible scene of this man not tasting death. But he's a faithful servant who the Lord, for some reason, you know, the Lord chose to take him. Perhaps he knew the agony that Elijah went through in Acts chapter, or excuse me, First Kings, you know, chapter 18 and 19, where he just, he was in agony as a prophet, you know, burdened beyond measure like Paul was. Maybe that's why he took him. But, you know, he's not the only guy that didn't die. Who was the other guy? Enoch. Genesis chapter 5 uh, it's all leading up to the flood just about to take place. It's, the, it's Noah's time. And you read out of the line of, of Adam, there was a man named Enoch who was, I think, 60 years old when he had um, Manasseh. And then he lived another 365 years or something like that. And as old as he was, it says that he walked with the Lord and then was not for the Lord took him. You know, he walked with the Lord in a day and age where men and women were so perverted and so pagan that God saw that the thoughts and intents of their heart from their youth was only evil continually, and he was sorry that he made man, and he was going to send a flood on the earth to destroy every man on earth except for Noah and his family, and except for this other guy, Enoch, who might not have been able to get to the ark in time or something. Who knows? But took Enoch up. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, to me it's just a picture of of the rapture of the church, you know, uh, the Lord taking Noah out of a time of wrath being poured out upon the earth, the Lord taking Enoch, people who walked with the Lord um, out of the earth. And, uh, but we'll study all of that in a couple of weeks, the rapture of the church and different views on that. And, uh, and it's okay to have different views. This is just where, where I'm kind of landing and um, just a picture to me of the rapture. But Elijah went up and was raptured. That's what that word means, is caught up. So in a way, he's kind of raptured up and the world went into heaven. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 says that I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we will be changed. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you know, we'll be caught up. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps uh, there'll be this generation, you know, getting to not taste death. But um, verse 12, and Elisha saw it. So is he going to get that thing that he asked for, that present that he asked for? Yeah, he saw it happen. And we're just about to close. So if you're getting antsy, I don't blame you. If I had to listen to me all the time, goodness gracious. But Elisha saw it. And man, you might just underline that. That's just cool. And he cried out, my father, my father, you know, my spiritual father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. He says, my father. And we read three times in this book about the sons of the prophets, And what that's talking about is, like I said earlier, kind of a Bible school that was taking place, a school of ministry where they were trained under the prophets. And and you just see this throughout even the Old Testament, these Bible schools. 
where men were trained up in their giftings. And, and uh, Elisha uh, was part of Elijah's Bible school. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so Ahab's chariots weren't the chariots that protected Israel, but God's chariots uh, were the ones that were Israel's real chariots. So he saw him no more, and he took a hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also looked, uh, took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and uh, apparently that chariot took him so fast that his coat fell off. Uh, but uh, he took that mantle and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And, you know, just like, All right, Lord, let me see you work. I'm confident that you've called me for this. And he too takes a step of faith. Somehow he's got to get back across the Jordan. Uh, and when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Uh, Jesus says that also, you know, that same spirit was upon John the Baptist, you know, and it's an interesting study. And I believe that same spirit can be upon us today. And, uh, and you know what that means also is that Elijah's, Elisha's plea came true and he did receive a double portion. And what's interesting is Elijah has seven recorded miracles. Guess how many Elisha has? 14. Good job. And Elijah had a 25-year ministry as a prophet. Guess how many years Elisha had? Nope. Uh, yeah, 50. Good job. Uh, and they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him. So this Bible school now, you know, Samuel was a leader of one of the Bible schools. Elijah was a leader of one of the Bible schools. And now Elisha is a leader of one of these prophetic schools. And they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. I know where he's at. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? I told you so. He's in heaven. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. Then he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from there for it shall be no more uh, death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. So Elijah's first miracle was stopping the rain and bringing famine. And we see kind of a different ministry in Elisha, a uh, little bit less fire and brimstone, but uh, we see him restoring water as his first miracle. And uh, verse 23, here's a fun story to close on. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. There's a lesson in that. Uh, some of you could probably teach a Bible study on it. But... Uh, no, but, you know, go up, you bald head. You know, what was Elijah like? A hairy man. You know, what was uh, Elisha like? Bald, apparently. And so they were kind of mocking, like, you're not really going to replace him. 
You know, there, there's always big shoes to fill when you step into a ministry. And, uh, or also, you know, why don't you go up in your chariot? Now, that could be what it's talking about. You know, why don't you go up? And so they weren't little, cute little boys, you know, playing a little, singing a little rhyme. They were, you know, rogues, you know, young gang members with switchblades and bandanas and tattoos. And, uh, but, you know, what a, you know, there is a lesson there to be just careful how we talk to and about uh, our leaders, you know, and all throughout the scriptures, we're told not to do anything with murmuring and murmuring is onomatopoeia. You know, it, it sounds how the words is said, murmur, 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 and how we can murmur about our pastor and our elders and our leadership and how that's not to be so. It is not to be so. If you have a problem with one of us, you come talk directly to us, just like if you have a problem with anybody else. So be careful uh, how critical you are of those that are put over you. My pastor always used to say, it's a whole lot easier to be critical than it is to pray for the person. And if you look, it's a whole Bible study. But if you look through numbers, just the Lord would judge those who would murmur against Moses. Even his own siblings uh, murmured against him and complained and they were struck with leprosy. And so it's a whole Bible study, but man, we're just warned, uh, you know, to pray for our leaders. And if you have concerns, we're totally available to talk with you guys. So uh, instead of poisoning somebody's well, just come talk to us. So